2 Samuel chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles, you can jump to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Last week, Dave ended uh, by challenging us to remember that our lives are not in our control. If you recall, he kind of finished off with Abner and, and his thought process of like how he felt that he was in control of all things. He had this mindset, like he was the one who brought Ishbosheth to power. He had this idea that, you know what, he was going to remove Ishbosheth from power. Uh, all of this sort of framework that he had and this mentality that he had. And, and, and so he challenged us with that, that little last portion to say, hey, there's something coming next week that's going to happen to Abner that's going to demonstrate that he's actually not in control like he thinks he is. So... As I was preparing for this message, like this, this passage in, in uh, Proverbs 16 kept coming back to me about how Abner, and as we look at Joab as well, but how Abner kind of had this mentality in his life that he was going to set the direction of his life. He was going to set the course of his life. And, and then this passage in Proverbs 16 that says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Uh, I don't know if we... we we, we've heard this passage, I'm sure, before over and over. I just don't know if we, we really get to the, the impact of it. If you are sitting here in this space and you believe in the sovereignty of God, then you must believe that he is in control of your life. And so really, all we have to do is one thing. We have one responsibility, and that is to give everything over to him. Did you simply say, okay, Lord, I just want to have a heart of obedience. I just want to, I want this to be about you. I want my life to be about your glory. And I want to live things out for you. And sometimes in life, we're asked to do things that are hard. And sometimes in life, we're asked to do things that are really easy. But in both circumstances, if we can constantly remember that that we can have plans in our lives, but it is the Lord who sets our direction. It is the Lord who sets our steps. If we follow in line with everything that we've called to be or do according to his will and purpose, then we bring him glory. And that's, that's where we have to be. So it's the Lord that establishes the steps of man to their success or failure. And, and we would do, all of us would do well to remember that. There's many characters in Scripture that we could point to uh, that, that kind of display this notion. But seeing as how we're marching through 2 Samuel, and we do have these characters of Abner and Joab kind of right before us, it's really good that we kind of camp there uh, on them for a bit. And so I just want to go through some of the basics of where we've gotten to uh, up to this point. Some of those things that we've kind of already discovered about uh, or in 2 Samuel. And, and we'll really kind of do just a quick recap of, of chapter 3. In verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 3, it, we read, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. You see, well, well all of this warring stuff that was taking place between the two houses uh, was being set up, and Dave talked about this last week, uh, Abner was, was kind of gauging the field. And he was seeing things kind of how they were playing out. He's like, well, this side's winning over here, so I'm going to go that way. And then, then as, as he begins to realize, hey, uh, th this side's beginning to get a little weaker, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the sense that his wheels started to turn. He's like, okay, so how can I, 
how can I make this play out to my advantage? See, Abner was trying to be strategic in his approach. And then in, in all of this, while all of this was taking place, in verse 6 it says, While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So, so Abner was doing things intentionally to, to sort of bolster his cred, so to speak. In, in the house that he was in. He was, he was pumping himself up. He was elevating himself. He was trying to get himself situated into a position that would best suit Abner. And that's really important. Because we have an individual in this situation who appears to be somewhat power hungry. And so he began, begins to, to move the pieces around so as to best fit his circumstance. It's not really about the kingdom. It's about the power and control that comes with being at the top of the kingdom. And that's really important. Because as you look at these two individuals that we look at today, and you look at the life of David, there is a, a, a marked difference between the two leadership styles. And the leadership that is displayed in David is a leadership that comes from, according to the word of God, one of humility, of, of, of actually putting people ahead of himself for, for the most part. I mean, we have hindsight and we get to look at some of the failings of David as well. But as we look at his ruling and his leadership, we get a sense that David was there for his people to do what the Lord had him do in his time. But not Abner. Abner was busy moving the puzzle pieces around, moving the, the, part, the, the chessboard, or setting up the chessboard for his own best interest. See, Abner believed that Ishbosheth was a weak ruler. And, and so he intentionally had his way of, of putting him into this position. He took somebody that he knew was a weak leader and put him into a position of authority because he knew that he was going to be able to manipulate that. See, this was all intentional. But Ishbosheth has this aha moment. It's like, wait a minute, something's not right here. I'm supposed to be the king. And he calls Abner out. And he says to Abner, to Abner he's like, like, what is this thing that you're doing here? And you can read about that in chapter 7, uh, of ver or sorry, verse, uh, verse 7 of chapter 3. You can read about this, uh, this sort of calling out. This actually causes Abner to get his back up. And I was like, well, fine. It's not that he repents of his sin, but he, he makes this decision that he's going to do whatever he needs to do to get rid of Ishbosheth. And he's going to reposition himself now to become a ruler of a different sort because this Ishbosheth character, who was supposed to be weak and feeble, has now kind of stood up to him and confronted him and has made him now say, well, fine. If that's the way you want to be, I'm going to go make sure that your kingdom doesn't rule at all. And he decides that he's going to go over and join David. I, I, does that sound like, like the, the heart of a ruler that is, is directly and intentionally purposeful in the hearts of people? It, it just you, you get this sense from Abner that all he is truly concerned about is his own well-being. And, and the direction that, that, that his life is going to take. So Abner makes this move. 
he heads on over to, to have this meeting with David, and, and, and Dave covered this all last week about, you know, some of the expectations that, that David had in order to meet with Abner. He had to bring his, his former wife back, etc., and all this sort of stuff. But Abner gets all of this stuff done and has this meeting with David. And, and he, the Bible says that after the meeting, David dismissed him to go in peace. And, and it's, it's from that point that, that I want us to carry forward and, and jump off in, into our narrative. But before we do that, uh, let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for all that you are. Lord God, we are so grateful to you that we have examples in your word of how to live life best. And Lord, how to not do things. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us in our hearts, we would check ourselves and we would be able to come to terms with the reality, one, of who you are, and two, with the reality of who we are. And Lord God, that we would then take that and continually be transformed into who you would have us be. Lord God, we are so grateful for grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sin. Now, Lord God, let us live a life that is completely free to do as you would will in our lives. We pray all of this in your son's name, the wonderful and holy name of Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So David concludes last week with Abner going away in peace and, and, and being kind of, I think, assured of his position. Uh, just like, yeah, I'm good. Things are great. Moving on. Let's pick up the narrative. Chapter, verse 22, sorry, of chapter 3. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with him. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and had gone in peace. When Job and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and has let him go, or in the king, and he let, has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? I, I don't know if you guys know the relationship between Joab and Dave, uh, David in, in, in the fullness of the culmination of sort of what exists. Uh, Joab um, and David, are, or Joab is David's nephew. So there's like this family relation that exists. But beyond Joab being David's nephew, Joab is like a dude's dude. All right? He's, he's a warrior to the core. In fact, there's really one other person in this time frame that would rival Joab's cunning and ability as a warrior. And that other individual just happens to be Abner, the guy on the other side. But Joab, um, in fact, as you read through scripture, the, the Bible does not even seem to imply that Joab ever lost a battle. This, this dude was good at what he did. And, and, and so he has the ear of David because of that. Not only is he David's nephew, but he's also a confidant. Someone that David turns to to get sort of wisdom and guidance and instruction. And so 
In this particular instance, Joab, being who he is, has the boldness to go to David and, and simply suggest to David, like, hey, what's going on here? Now, I can't read tone in the word of God, but I can only imagine that Joab wasn't too happy that Abner was released. And, and if you don't know the backstory of what took place, there's a very significant reason why. Because Abner was actually responsible for Joab's brother's death. So there's a, there's a character that we read about earlier, Asahel, who, who chases down Abner in this battle of Gibeon. And, and, and Joab or Abner's on the run and this Asahel is, is chasing after him. And, and there, he's running away. And he's like, hey, like... Don't chase me. Turn around. Go away. I don't need you. I don't want to kill you. And yada, yada, yada. And finally, Joab, or Abner just kind of says, uh, enough's enough. He turns around and, and ends up killing Asahel, who is Joab's brother. And this makes Joab right angry. I mean, and, 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 and maybe rightfully so. They're in the heart of battle. Joab has this, this rational reason maybe to be ticked off that his brother was killed. And so this is the history that exists. Forget the fact that they're on two opposing sides of warring factions. Both men are amazing strategic military men. Abner has killed a family member of Joab. So there's this like built-in added tension that exists between the two. So... Joab, in his anger, is in no way, shape, or form prepared to forgive Abner for what he's done. And so in his heart and mind burns this vengeance, this, this need for revenge. And so Abner, or sorry, Joab gets angry at David as we seem to sort of read in here. And, and maybe it was a, a righteous anger or, or maybe he approached him humbly and, and quite contrite. I don't know. But it seems to imply here that Ab, or Joab was not happy with the fact that Abner was released. And he says this in verse 25. You know that, that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you. And to know you're going out and you're coming in. And to know all that you are doing. Now again, we have the availability of scripture set before us. We know why Abner was there. It wasn't for this reason. But Joab has to come up with a story. He has to come up with a narrative that is going to justify or rationalize his feelings. And if, if he can make up in his mind and believe this truth in his head that, that Abner was there to do harm to David, it is going to justify him in his response to Abner. Now, we all have a, a tendency to kind of to do this, don't we? We, we, we take a look at situations and, and we often, we, we put into the situation the narrative that's going to kind of best suit us. And, and, and I, don't, I don't point the finger and say, shame on you. I, I, I do it to myself as well. We, we constantly find ourselves in this place where, where we're trying to interpret the narrative that is before us. And we often interpret that narrative in a manner that is going to best suit us. And this passage or this story 
um, should really cause us to kind of check that up. And, and, and I think that we as, as a Christian church, not just this, but as, as a whole, the universal Christian church, we, we need to begin to try to interpret the narratives in our lives in accordance to the glory of the Lord. Like, okay, Abner is released, and if, if Joab had this mindset, it, it would be not, you know, Abner's come to just simply deceive you and to, and to twist your, your mind into thinking that everything is okay, but Joab would, would say, okay, God, how are you going to get the glory from this situation? It changes things. It changes our approach. It changes how we look at people. If we approach life with the mindset of the glory of the Lord as the focal point, I promise you, your life will change. How you interpret the narrative that is going before you will change. Because it no longer is just about you. It's about the glory of the Lord. And, and, and I, I have this written down, uh, not on the one that I gave Brian. Sorry, Brian. Um, because as I was writing, writing this sermon down, I, I, I had this book up on my shelf. And it's by Max Lucado. And, and the title of the book is, It's Not About Me. And I was like, oh man, like, yeah, I constantly interpret life about me. But it, it's not about me. It's ultimately about the glory of the Lord. And if, if Joab, Joab would have just, would have taken a moment. He might have been able to realize that. But again, you got to remember, Joab is filled with rage. He is angry at what Abner has done. And that rage has blinded him even to the potential in his own heart to look at things rationally. I'm convinced that Joab actually believed that Abner was there to do harm. He doesn't know what David and Abner talked about. Nor, nor does he really care. His disdain for Abner has clouded his vision and his line of thinking. It always amazes me when, when ideas get stuck in our head like this. How, how often we interpret these ideas the way they are. It, it, it makes, we, we actually can convince ourselves of lies and make ourselves believe things that just aren't true. Sin works that way, doesn't it? I mean, these little doubts that we have in, in our abilities turn into like crippling ideas or notions that we're just not significant or good enough or in some people we have to change our body image or how we talk or all of these things that just get implanted into our mind. We begin to believe these lies. Some of us, uh, fear sets in and, and, and we just can't move forward. There's There's... So many things that get implanted into our brains that we begin to believe, and they're really just lies. I, I, I think it's best that as individuals, as, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, um, that we, we do constant checkups in our lives. And, and that requires both being in God's word. It requires having godly counsel around us people that we can turn to and ask like legit questions to but but it also requires us to be attuned to to the workings of the holy spirit in our life 
and to have those checkups in our lives to say, okay, Lord, where am, where am I actually letting sin kind of reign in my life? And I promise you this, if this is a genuine concern of yours, the Lord will reveal it to you. It's not like he's just content for you to sit in the space that you're in and be in the sin and go, oh, you know what? They're genuine. They really want to get rid of their sin. Ah, we'll just leave them there. That's not the heart of God. We come before our Lord and, and, and we do this checkup and we say, God, just, just reveal the things in my life that I need to have revealed so that I can change to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. They will be revealed. And then we don't have to believe those lies any longer. See, if you leave sin unchecked, James actually talks about this in James chapter 1. Um, he, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Think about those things that we let reign in our lives. One of the most prevalent things in our culture is fear. I don't know if you guys track with this or not, but I mean, everything that comes at you from outside sources is always going to be fear-based in some way, shape, or form. Like, oh no, the climate's going to change and we're all going to burn. <laughs> right? Uh, it's, it's all fear-based. Like, uh, we need to change how we, we act and treat each other or we're going to implode. Yeah, because we're sinful. Like, that, that happens. But we have the answer for that. We have the remedy for that. And if we just allow ourselves to do this, this check, then we don't have to let these desires that James says we have kind of reign in our lives. I mean, if you think about it, n nobody sees fear as a desire. Right? Like, nobody desires. None of you are sitting here like, man, I really want to be afraid today about everything. It's not something that's praised. Or, or, or nobody sets out in their life to be like super proud. He didn't get up this morning and just go, I wonder how I can just pump my own tires and inflate my ego today. Nobody does that. But yet, some reason, in each and every one of us, we have this draw towards that. And that's what James is talking about. There's these things in our lives that, that have this pull towards us that we look at and go like, ooh, man, if I live life that way, that's just going to be better for me, and I'm, I'm going to do that. And those things then, as we have those desires that entice us, those temptations that come, they actually turn into sin in our lives. And, and, and we see this constantly. If you look at your life, do you notice, do you notice any sinfulness that's there? That sinfulness that's there, if, you've, if you're doing this internal check, that has come um, from unchecked desires and temptations. Just so, so, so we're all sort of on the same page and speaking the same language. That sin that's there has come from unchecked temptations and desires. And so now, with that sin exposed, you actually have the ability to fight back. And, and that's what it takes is the power of Christ in you to begin to beat back and clean up some of that junk that's there so that when you get up tomorrow morning, you wake up more like Jesus Christ than you did when you went to bed. Because that's the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, back, sorry, I got distracted. Back to Job. Job was vengeful, he was angry, he was proud, he had the desire for revenge, and it conceived in him this action of murder. And we're going to get to, to that in, in a second. 
Joab was so angry and so vengeful that he was blinded by the reality of what existed directly before him. And in fact, if you read about Joab and his life, you can find out about the conclusion of his life in 1 Kings chapter 2. You read about his death and how uh, a commentator puts it actually this way. In 1 Kings chapter 2, Joab's life ends sadly. He was a fugitive from the new king, Solomon. He sought refuge in the temple, but was executed there. His execution was actually ordered by David on his deathbed. The king Joab served his whole life had him killed as one of his last instructions. Why did this happen? It happened because of Joab's pride. He put himself above the law on multiple occasions, leaning on his own intelligence. Uh, one of those instances is actually going to come to play here right away. Joab's desires gave way to sin, which led to his literal physical death. The death James is referring to in this passage that we just read is a spiritual death. Now, now praise God, we have the action of his son, Jesus Christ, that made it possible for us not to have to face eternal damnation. But we do have to lay our selfish, sinful ambitions aside, place them at the foot of the cross, and allow the forgiveness of Christ to wash over us, that we need, then we need to leave them there and just walk away. And, and friends, Grant, I know that's hard. But that's what we're called to do. So I started this message wanting to talk about Abner. I somehow got distracted and started talking about Job, or Joab. Uh, let's bring it back to, to Abner here in this, this narrative that we have uh, going on here. Verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. Joab goes around David's back, behind David's back, and calls Abner back to Hebron. Now, I honestly can't tell you what Abner was thinking in this situation. You've just left the presence of the king of Judah, a man who you have now made an alliance with. Then suddenly you are called back to the city, not by David, but by Joab, the commander of his army. The person that you are in direct conflict with. The person that you, you killed his brother is calling you back to, like, is it going through Abner's mind, like, oh man, he wants to just make up and shake hands. This will be great. I, I don't, unless he was deluded somehow, I don't understand. I honestly cannot stand here before you and tell you that I have any idea what was going through Abner's mind. The only thing that I can really come up with is that his pride has deluded himself so much that he conceives that he is untouchable. It doesn't matter what Joab wants. I'm friends with the king. I'm going to get him raised to power because it's within my control to do. Who cares about Joab? Hey, I, is, is that the mentality that Abner has? I, I don't know. 
uh, he, he could, he, Abner cannot be thinking in this situation, well, you know, Joab is the commander of the king, uh, the right-hand man of the king. There's no way he's going to go behind his back. He can't be thinking that because Abner was doing that exact thing. And, 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 and certainly he, he wouldn't look at Joab and say, well, Joab is such an outstanding citizen because, you know, he's just such a great guy. Uh, they've been at war forever. So I just, I, I have no idea of why Abner is going back, except the only thing that comes to my mind is his pride. Pride is a, is a killer. <laughs> Metaphorically and literally. Let, let's see what happens. Uh, verse 27. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Now, there's so much going on in this little passage that, that I just want to kind of camp here for the rest of the time that we have together uh, just to unpack it. Abner returns to Hebron, a place that was established by God as a city of refuge. If you don't know what a city of refuge is, you can read about the cities of refuge in Numbers 35. But essentially, uh, Hebron being a city of refuge was just a place where if somebody killed somebody else, if an Israelite killed somebody else, they had the freedom to run to this, these cities of refuge. And, and when they would run to these cities of refuge, the, they would then get judged by, by the priests that were there. And, and if they were found guilty, then they were handed over to death. But if they were innocent, they had the freedom to sort of camp out in Hebron uh, or, or in the city of refuge, wherever it was. Uh, there were six of them in, in Israel at the time. They had freedom to camp out in the city and just receive the protection uh, of, of the city. And, and the, the, what they called the, the avenger of blood was the individual who, who actually got to, to come after. Uh, let's, let's, you guys are all looking at me like, what is this guy talking about? Let me use me as an example, right? If I killed somebody, I didn't. But if I killed somebody as an Israelite, I had the freedom to run to this city of refuge. Now, whomever I killed, they also, the relative of that individual, had the ability or freedom to actually take my life for killing their relative. Whether it was, was justified or not, that this killing took place, there has been no judgment. The, the uh, avenger of blood had the reasonable right to come and take my life. So what I would do is I would book it to the city of refuge. And then I would let the individual, the, the priest in the city of refuge, judge my actions of this killing that took place. Now, if they judged me to be a murderer, I was done for. I was handed over to death. If they judged my killing to be innocent, that, that means it wasn't done on purpose or malicious or whatever have you, it wasn't done in self-defense, then, then I had the freedom within that city to be safe. And I was safe, in fact, in that city until I had my case tried. So the Avenger of the Blood, they could come into the city, they could march around, but they couldn't do anything to me. If I stepped outside of the city, like, I looked and saw, like, ooh, there's some raspberries over there, they look delicious. And I decide to leave the city, the avenger of blood at that point, if he's waiting at the gates, boom, get me, I'm gone. No, no judgment required. 
And so this was the, the city that Abner had gotten back to. So quite technically, even though Asael had been killed by his hand, which according to the, the law of the time was, was justified because it was done in battle, and, and, and killings in self-defense were actually not seen as, as murders. Uh, so, so Abner was, was technically supposed to be kept safe within the city. And so he goes back, he's in Hebron. But what Joab does was he lures him out just far enough. Now, there's some commentators who say that when they, this term amidst the gates, there was an inner gate and an outer gate, and you weren't actually in the city until you were in the inner gate. But most of the conversations that took place between like the elders of the city usually took place in this space. So it was fairly significant. So Abner's looking at this going, okay, it's not too uncommon for people to go to this space and have conversation. Now, Joab's not looking at this like, hey, I just want to have a conversation with this guy. He wants to get him out just far enough so he is justified in his murder. And that's what Joab does. And again, I don't know what Abner's thinking. He is safe in Hebron. There isn't going to be any killings that take place in Hebron that would be of any intentional nature. And yet he listens to this enemy of his and follows him outside of the city and ultimately loses his life. I am just completely amazed at at the workings of this entire situation and then how God works. Because, and, and I didn't unpack David's lament over Abner, but later on, uh, David laments over Abner's death. And I'm not sure if Dave will touch on that next week or not. But, but this lament that David has for Abner is really quite profound. As I read through this, this passage, that verse of, of Proverbs 16 always comes back to me. The heart of man plans his way, but it's the Lord who establishes his steps. And so in this lament that David has uh, over Abner's death, David actually refers to Abner's death as a fool's death. If you read it in verse 33, and I'll let Dave unpack the, the majority of it, but it says, And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? See, A.G. Brown interpreted David's lament this way. Can it be true that such a man as Abner, with all his mental power and all his martial prowess, can it be true that Abner of all men died like a fool? David continues on his lament, basically said that Abner died without being chained, without being muzzled. He, He just, he willingly walked into his own death. And David goes, should should Abner die like a fool? And you know what? It's actually that phrase that struck me the hardest when I was going through my preparation of this. There's several qualities in Scripture that that are are indicative of a fool. Uh, I want to read some of them here. Proverbs 10.18 says that the one who conceals hatred has lying lips And whoever utters slander is a fool. Liars and slanderers 
are fools, according to Scripture. The way of a fool, Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. A person that is always right doesn't have any need for instruction. According to God's word, it's foolish. Proverbs 17, 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. A person that doesn't respond to correction, who is just intent on doing the same thing over and over and over again, regardless of the outcome, the Bible says that they are a fool. It actually goes hand in hand with the verse that we read earlier. They don't need anybody else. They know the right path. They know what to do. It's all about them. That person is a fool. A person who who constantly is in other people's business, uh, stirring the pot, so to speak. Proverbs 20 verse 3 says, It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. And if you don't know what it means to don't stir the pot, ask Brent, he'll, he'll inform you of what it means to not don't stir the pot. It makes, has new meaning for me once I've eaten a dish called poiki, all right? Don't stir the pot. Um, Brian, you're going to have to help me. This is in Matthew, but I can't remember where. Matthew 7? Matthew 7, thank you. Matthew 7 says in verse 26 and 27, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Those who hear God's word but reject it, they're fools. They're foolish. Finally, Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, There is none who does good. Who is it that says there is no God but the haughty and the proud? Who is it that says, in this life, I am the ticket. I'm all there is. I don't need anything or anyone else. It's the fool. And those individuals that we read about that have this mentality are in danger of dying a fool's death. That's a, a pretty harsh reality. When we think, and, I'm, and I'm not standing in front of you saying, like, check yourselves. Maybe you need to. I, I, I don't know. But we all have people in our lives that are at risk of dying fool's deaths. And, and, and David, in this passage, is, as if Dave unpacks it next week, he laments over this. This is a tragedy that Abner died in this manner. Friends, we have the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It exists within the hearts of each and every one of us. And out there, in the world that we live in, that we are constantly a part of, live fools. We have a calling on our lives 
to bring the gospel message of Jesus Christ to them so they, they can step out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have that calling on our lives. And so we go back to the life of the Nazarite, the vow that was taken by them to say, I am not only just going to verbally say that I am going to follow God, I am going to demonstrate it with the very fabric of my being. That's what we're called to, friends. Each and every one of us in the circle of people that we have to influence. We are called to go beyond just words and live lives in obedience to Jesus Christ so that others can take a look at our actions and give praise to our Father in heaven and no one needs to die a fool's death. We are not all Abners, but we know some. And can we truthfully make it our heart's desire to live in accordance to the word of God and have as many come to the knowledge of understanding as, uh, of him as can be through our lives because of our obedience? That's our call. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for all that you are. Uh, Lord, the story of Abner and Joab is heavy. There's a lot of history that goes on between these two men. But Lord God, at the very end of it, Abner dies a death that he didn't need to die. And if it was because of his own pride and hubris, Lord, allow that to be a stark reminder to each and every one of us. Lord, let us not allow unchecked sin to reign in our lives that, that, that these temptations and desires that turn to sin and ultimately lead to death. Allow us to turn to you in all circumstances, getting your wisdom, your guidance, and your direction. And Lord, if we have people in our lives that you are calling us to, to either help them understand the reality of their ways or, or, Lord, allow them to come to a deeper knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, through our actions. Please make, that, make us abundantly clear. Lord God, allow each and every one of us to live this life that we live, not just on a Sunday, making Sunday a, a holy day, but every day we live out in accordance to your will for your glory alone. Thank you, Lord God, for being the audience of our life. Thank you for being here in this space with us as we sought to glorify you. Now, as we go on our way, Lord God, may you get the honor and the glory and praise that is our lives. We pray all of this in your son's name, the wonderful and holy name of Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.